At this new year, I draw your attention to the sixth chapter of the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 6. I'm reading but a single verse, but first a word about its context. Jeremiah was preaching one of many sermons exposing the unbelief and the disobedience of the Jews, the church of his day. They had accommodated the true faith of Moses to the surrounding paganism, worshiping other gods in addition to Yahweh. They also inevitably compromised the exacting moral standards of the law of Moses, choosing instead to live like the people around them. As a result, they also betrayed the life of the covenant community, each person seeking his own profit or pleasure without regard to the interests of others. This is what always happens, of course, when the lordship of God is denied. They were sexually immoral. The rich were mistreating the poor. And honesty in personal and business relations was uh, a rarity now in Jewish society. And so Jeremiah prophesied the Lord's judgment on his people for their infidelity to him and to one another. It is in the midst of that sermon that we hear Jeremiah explaining what the Jews should have done and what they did instead. There in verse 16, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. As we face the new year, Anno Domini 2018, it's well for us to take stock, to think about the world in which we are living, the culture of which we are a part, what it means to be a Christian in the United States of America in the year 2018. Like virtually every human culture before us, our modern Western culture is both impressive and repulsive. To different people, depending upon their worldview, it is impressive for different reasons and repulsive for different reasons, but everyone for his or her own reasons finds it both impressive and repulsive. And to be sure, we Christians are hardly the only ones who are thinking about our culture, its accomplishments, its achievements on the one hand, its sins and its corruptions on the other. All sorts of people are offering their evaluations and they do so especially at the dawn of the new year. We are a people agog at the future. We even have people who style themselves as futurists, predictors of the future. They would call themselves prophets, but that term leads too easily to the epithet of false prophet. Who's ever heard of a false futurist? Prophets they are. Most of the time their prophecies prove to be false, but they are prophecies nonetheless. In our modern age, which, in which there has been so much remarkable achievement in technology, Many are predicting much more of the same in the year and the years that follow. 
the end of the internal combustion engine, the creation of new forms of cheap, sustainable, eco-friendly energy. Through gene therapy, the elimination of the diseases that carry most of us away before we are 75 or 80 or 90 years of age. Space travel and the permanent settlement of human beings on other planets. Even the creation of a newer, better, happier, more peaceful human being. We hear a lot of such predictions, especially from the tech world. They're on the verge of this or that development that will transform the world and make it something altogether new and better than it has ever been before. But not everyone is sanguine about the future. Others point out that our standard of living has stagnated, that real breakthroughs are now rarer than they were 50 or 60 years ago. There has been nothing recently that remotely resembles the transformations of culture brought about by the widespread availability of clean water and electricity, by the birth of aviation, by the invention of antibiotics, or the harnessing of nuclear energy. The impact of innovation on the American economy over the last decade, for example, has been a paltry one-half of 1%, according to the Wall Street Journal. None of the 20 most often prescribed drugs in the United States came onto the market in the last decade. Houses, appliances, and automobiles look pretty much like and perform pretty much like they did a generation ago. Airplanes go no faster than they did in the 1950s. You can get a quote quickly from an insurance company online nowadays, but you're likely to pay a similar percentage of your income on hazard insurance as your parents did before you. In fact, you may pay more. And of course, much of the new technology that so amazes us, computers, the internet, the cell phone, has as many deleterious effects as salutary. For the first time, pornography is readily available at the push of a button or the touch of a screen wrecking untold damage on the souls of men and on their wives and families. Immense numbers of young men now into their 30s are spending literally months worth of every year playing video games. Social media is bringing out the worst features of the human spirit, its narcissism, its triviality, its cruelty. But the worst is yet to come. According to Stephen Hawking, the celebrated Cambridge astrophysicist, we have nothing to expect but gloom and doom over the next century. Indeed, he thinks our planet has but some 100 years of life remaining. If global warming doesn't get it, a meteor will, or get us a meteor will. If the meteors continue to miss us, some pandemic is going to do us in. If somehow we escape those threats, the Earth's growing population will overwhelm the planet's capacity to provide for everyone. What is needed, he thinks, is that we create ways for us to colonize other planets because ours will soon be unable to sustain human life. A year ago, he thought that we had a thousand years. A year later, he has reduced his estimate to a mere century. Some of that, he makes clear, is due to the election of Donald Trump. In any case, very soon, 
the earth will be as hot as Venus and unable to sustain human life. Well, which is it? Are we on the cusp of a glorious new flourishing of human life on earth, or are we hurtling toward the abyss? And how are we to know? Christians look at these questions in a very different way, or at least they ought to. Fundamental to our outlook is that this world is not our world, except in a secondary sense. It's God's world first. He made it, he rules it. It lives or it dies at his pleasure. We're not ultimately in control of human history and we are certainly not ultimately in control of the future of the human race. The Bible often rings the changes on that brute fact. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What is more, the Lord has promised that the earth would not be destroyed until the time he has appointed for the culmination and consummation of human history. We're reminded of that every time we see a rainbow in the sky. But more than that, and on the human level itself, throughout time human beings made as they have been in the image of God have found ways to overcome the challenges they face. So extraordinarily inventive as they are, so created as they have been in the image of the Creator Himself, gifted as they have been with such extraordinary powers. We marvel at what our cell phones can do. But they're cheap baubles compared to the human brain. My iPhone 6 has 16 gigabytes of memory. With that, it can handle about 2 million pages of text, 11,000 photographs, or 4,500 songs. Amazing, or so we think. The human brain's memory capacity is equal to one petabyte. A petabyte is the equivalent of something more than a million gigabytes, or 62,500 times the memory of my iPhone 6. The entire Library of Congress contains some 235 terabytes of data. A petabyte is four times larger. Even sinful human beings, ill-motivated, have an extraordinary record of success in overcoming all manner of problems and in the creating of technological wonders. And we haven't yet spoken of all that human beings have created that has adorned and ennobled human life from art, to music, to literature, to discovery, to the love of marriage and family, and so on. But much more significant, the Christian knows not only who and what a human being is, but why the story of mankind's life in the world has taken the course it has. We know how human life began, and so we know why the human being is such an extraordinary thing possessed of such breathtaking powers. We know why from the very beginning human beings were creating masterpieces of culture, were changing the world in which they lived, were accomplishing things that still today leave us baffled and humbled, whether the pyramids of Giza or the epic poems of Homer or the calculations of the ancient astronomers. We know where the creative urge 
and the creative power comes from. We know that human beings were made for fellowship with the Creator Himself. But we also know how it happened that human beings descended into such moral beggarliness. Why human beings endowed with such remarkable powers and potential should have become so contemptible, petty, cruel, stupid, and insensible to their own pride and selfishness. We know about the creation of man, but we know also about his fall. We know that man, for all his genius and his potential for great good, is now curved in on himself, a rebel against the God who gave him his life, determined to repudiate his very nature as a person made in the image of the living and true God. Man is at one and the same time godlike and a petulant child. So it's not difficult for us to understand how human beings could have created the internet or why it should now be so often put to such sordid and corrupt and harmful uses by pornographers, by hackers, by ordinary people talking endlessly about themselves to anyone in the universe who might be willing to listen. We live in a day when people worship progress, invest their hope in progress. But there's always been progress, and it's always proved to be a double-edged sword. It solves some problems and creates others. The problems usually as sinister as the solutions are remarkable. Christians take all of this in stride. Holy Scripture teaches us both why human beings will always accomplish tremendous things and why their accomplishments will invariably sour and leave mankind in trouble still. No mere creature is going to escape the judgment of his creator when the creature refuses to acknowledge his place in God's world. That's Jeremiah's point. The truth lies behind us, he said, in the great facts of creation, fall, and redemption. They have always been the pillars of any true understanding of human life and history. They will always remain the pillars of any such true understanding. Any other viewpoint, any other perspective, any other philosophy of life must fail because it is not compatible with reality with the world as God made it, with human life as God created it, and with divine judgment upon human sin as God promised to impose it. Man's hope from the moment of the fall was, has been, will be, deliverance from sin and divine judgment through the redemption that God accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ. The only happy future for human beings has been from the very beginning, that future that opens before a man or woman who has faith in the Son of God. There's never been any other hope. There never will be, because man's problem is not technological, it's not astrophysical, it's not medical, it's not economic, it's not political, it's not intellectual. Man's problem is himself. His selfishness, his pride, his dishonesty, his cruelty, his covetousness, his lack of love for God and for other human beings. His problem is that his sinfulness has alienated him from God and separated God from him. 
So deep is his bondage to his corrupt self that only God can rescue him from it. Jeremiah's contemporaries remained blithely indifferent to Jeremiah's warnings because they didn't accept this view of things, this perspective on human life, what Jeremiah calls the ancient paths. And so it was that they were killed or captured by the Babylonians. At that moment, simply more technologically and politically advanced sinners than the Jews were. And so it was that the Babylonians in turn were conquered by the Greeks who were in turn swept away by the Romans and on and on. There was the story, the ancient story of Sisyphus rolling his boulder up the hill only to have it roll down again precisely because sharp-sighted men already realized long ago that man's efforts to build a kingdom on this earth were doomed to futility. Such futility is really the story of human history. Man's salvation, his solution to the problems of his life, lies in the grace of God bringing new spiritual life in the law of God, directing men and women into the paths of true goodness, and in another world far better than this world, a world without sin, and so without problems. Nothing else has ever given sure, solid, and lasting hope to men and women in the face of the realities of human existence. Nothing ever will. You would think by now that people will have learned this lesson, but that's precisely the nature of the bondage of human beings to sin. They're ever learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. God has to open their eyes, or they will keep them tightly shut, rather than to see the world as it actually is, or themselves as they actually are. Of course, in Jeremiah's day, as in every day since, and as in our own, there are prophets to tell us that there is another way forward than the ancient paths, another solution to our problem, another way of transforming human life, another way of finding that way around the corner to that world we have been seeking. Jeremiah's view of the message of those so-called prophets we have in verse 14 of this same chapter 6. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The problem, according to these sorts of advisors, of which we have a great many today, is that they locate the human problem anywhere and everywhere else than where it actually may be found, in the human heart in its rebellion against God. They will always have a ready audience. As Jeremiah put it at the end of the previous chapter, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But the problem, of course, is that the wound of the people is serious, so serious that only God can heal it, and unless it is healed, God's judgment must await, or as Jeremiah says at the end of chapter 5, my people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes? 
It's all very well to imagine that this or that will suffice to solve our problems, and don't let anyone kid you. Human life is beset by problems, immense, sinister problems, both intimately personal and very obviously public. But if we have misdiagnosed our disease, and if the treatment must therefore prove ineffective, if the disease is left to overspread our bodies, what can lie ahead but sickness and death? What the human being needs, what the human race desperately needs, is peace with God. But that's the last thing human beings are actually seeking. And of course, so it was with the Jews in Jeremiah's day. So it has been with unending generations of people since, and so it is with our own generation. So what we can expect, or what can we expect, therefore, but some form of what happened to the Jews in the 6th century B.C. If God's just judgment is looming above us and over us as our fundamental problem, but we concentrate on everything else except finding peace with God, human life must continue, inevitably continue, its endless round of futile effort to save itself and must again and again fall under that judgment as has so many generations of human life before, and as so many will in the future, as long as the future remains. And that both for the individual and the society, and that both in this world and the next. One thing is certain, no matter how the next year or the next hundred years may go, Human beings are no closer to solving their problems than they were in Jeremiah's day, and for precisely the same reason. They will not walk in the ancient paths where the good way is to be found. As Christians, our greatest concern should not be the promise of some tech enthusiast in the Silicon Valley to transform human life, We've heard that a thousand times before. He will have no more success than the vast multitudes who have gone before him. Our concern should be the increasing tendency of the Bible-believing church to heal the wound of mankind as if it were not serious. A church that preaches salvation but does not preach repentance is once again healing the wound of mankind as if it were not serious preaching that does not require men and women to face the genuine evil in their hearts, the fundamental selfishness of their lives, does not require them to feel the weight of the sin that dwells within them, the wickedness of their rebellion against God, the scope of their failure toward both God and man. I say preaching that does not take the human predicament seriously, that does not make men fear the judgments of the Lord, is preaching that must inevitably Steer people to the broad way, the easy way, the comfortable way, the wide gate. And our Savior said so solemnly that the broad way will take nobody to heaven. The ancient paths seem impossibly old-fashioned to an American in 2018. But they remain the only way to peace with God. There is agony and pain 
and sorrow required of us who walk on the ancient paths, the pain and the sorrow that comes with realizing that the problem is not somebody else, the way we're treated by others, the problem is not the lack, our lack of this or that, the problem is not with the system, it's not with the world, the problem is me and my own wicked heart, my own selfish desires, my ridiculous devotion to myself at the expense of God and everybody, everybody else. It was repentance from this that Jeremiah was seeking among the Jews of his day, and it was that repentance he never found. It was repentance God was demanding, and it was a failure of repentance that he judged so severely. Absolutely. Use a computer. Drive a battery-powered car if you can afford one. Fly to the moon if that becomes possible, so long as you still have plenty of money to invest in higher things more important to human beings. But remember, always remember this, especially when you're hearing the world talk about its future. None of that. Remarkable as those inventions may be in some respects, none of it matters at all in the total scheme of things. None of that is going to change the meaning of your life. None of it is going to alter your destiny in the world to come. If you can send a text or an email at hyperspeed, well and good. But remember this. You will get to the judgment seat of God at exactly the same pace as did the man or woman who never dreamed of such a thing as a cell phone. And when you stand before the great white throne, no computer is going to help you. You won't be speaking into your cell phone or showing the Almighty your Facebook page in hopes that he will befriend you. You'll be standing before the holy God whose eyes are too pure to behold iniquity and who will by no means clear the guilty to account for the life you lived and still much, much more to account for the life you did not live. It will not be for the speed of your digital devices that you will answer, but whether or not you walked on the ancient paths, confessing your sins, repenting of them, humbling yourself before God and man, trusting in the Son of God for your peace with God, and seeking day by day to live according to his will and for his kingdom. None of us should be overly concerned with Stephen Hawking's prognostications regarding the future of the human race. There have always been people with very powerful brains who don't know much of anything about human life. We shouldn't be concerned primarily because they are so unlikely to be true, but because they completely miss the point. The sin of man and the glory of the Redeemer, those are the real issues of human life. Those are the things that will determine the future of the human race and of every human being. Always have been, always will be. Everything else, I mean everything else, is detail. But if we concentrate on that message, on those ancient paths, will we lose our influence in the world? 
a world that has no interest in such things? No, we will not. We will gain influence. True repentance, true faith, true goodness, all of which can come only from God and with his blessing, have always been and will always be powers in this world, life-transforming powers. True enough, as our culture moves further and further away from God, and as its repudiation of the ancient paths becomes even more determined, we American Christians may find ourselves, as Jeremiah found himself, bearing witness to a largely uninterested generation. But we will have done our duty. We will have helped a few find the straight and narrow way that leads to everlasting life, and we will have enjoyed the pleasure of walking with God and living in his truth. The ancient ways are the true ways. And God will, as he always has, bear witness to the truth of those ancient paths, often enough to encourage his people. And those ancient paths will take us, as they have taken generations of the saints before us, to a new world where there is no death or crying or pain, no problems of any kind. What if we walk the ancient paths almost alone and our numbers continue to decrease in the land, as may be the case? We'll not be the first, we'll not be the last to have honored the Lord in difficult days. We have no hearth. The ashes lie in blackness where they brightly shone. We have no home, the desert sky, our covering, earth, our couch alone. We have no heritage. Deprived of these, we ask not such on earth. Our hearts are sealed. We seek in heaven for heritage and home and hearth. O Salem, city of the saints and holy men made perfect, we pant for thy gates, our spirits faint, thy glorious golden streets to see, to mark the rapture that inspires the ransomed and redeemed by grace, to listen to the seraphs' lyres and meet the angels face to face. Amen.